This is a sermon podcast from Ashland First United Methodist Church in Ashland, Oregon. Visit us online at ashlandmethodist.org for more sermons like this, church information, and how to get involved. Ashland Methodist, a community of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. Right? I love that book. Book of Revelations does not blink. It speaks and spills out its truth and leaves us to wrestle with it. And here we have this incredible vision of jewels and pearls, the most precious things the writer could think of, right? Has anybody had sort of what we would call a celestial experience or imagined what heaven might be like? People who have near-death experiences sometimes talk about the things that surrounded that experience. God tries to help us understand what preciousness looks like, what true value can we relate to. And so it's not so much that these gates are made of actual pearl. Imagine a gate made from one actual pearl. But that we are trying to name here the beauty beyond beauty, the preciousness beyond preciousness, the value that exceeds all things that we can imagine and declaring them as belonging to the city of God. I mean, like, wow, right? So we are still moving through our process on parables. And to refocus us on that parable, I'm going to read it again. It was very short the first time. Sometimes, like Dan said, once he got to read the whole genealogy list, which was a challenge, this one's simpler. Again, Matthew writes, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, When he finds one very precious pearl, he went and sold all he owned and bought it. So we're going to look at this parable, but we're going to take a side look. We're going to shift another step. We're going to hold on to that idea of the merchant seeking the pearl, the preciousness of the pearl. But we're going to also talk about stewardship. So stewardship is a time and season in the church where we specifically pay attention to what the needs, the resource needs of the church are for the upcoming year. And this includes gifts of time, gifts of prayer, gifts of finance, and gifts of management, right? As we take a look at what does the church need to live its mission and its purpose, and how how do we do that together as a people? So the theme this year is... Oop. The better gift is life itself. And this comes from a, a verse in the book of Sirach. So the book of Sirach um, is associated with our Bible, in some cases included with our Bible, depending on tradition. This is the verse. <clears throat> Wealth and wages make life sweet, but better than either is finding a treasure. This is the translation from the New Revised Standard Version. I thought it was the best English translation out there for that, so that's why I'm pulling it forward, as opposed to the NR, uh, CEB, which I think doesn't quite get it right. And one of the things that the N, that this particular 
does is it, it holds the lines together to reflect the meaning. So let's look at the Hebrew. Oh, wealth and wages are problematic. Problematic translation there. We'll get to that. There's the Hebrew. Uh, remember, Hebrew is read from right to left, so the opposite. And on the line here, you can see that we have the writer, Ben, the wise guy who wrote this, <clears throat> privileged the word sweet with the word treasure at the end in the Hebrew, and that is reflected part of what makes this such a good English translation uh, in, in, the, in our SV. So what does it mean um, <clears throat> to have this uh, privileging of the idea that sweet and treasure work together? <clears throat> and the deeper you look at this, the deeper you go. So wealth and wages takes us on a side road, but what they are trying to name in that idea of wealth and wages is that a skilled person could work the land in such a way that the land produced enough, the gift of the skill of husbandry and the reward, the wages, of the response of the soil to that gift. The soil would, by God's will in creation, lift up its produce, and the plants would grow and thrive by the grace of God and the cooperation of the soil, water, and air. This is known as being blessed, as opposed to when Cain is said to be cursed and that the ground would not grow for him, right? That the soil cried out with Abel's blood. So this is a fundamentally different way of understanding how biblical people understood what they were writing. The Western ideal is a self-made man who makes the crops grow. We give all the credit to the Western farmer, but Western farmers, like Eastern ones, knows the truth isn't actually like that. The truth is that skill is a big deal, but a bigger deal is what God brings your way. Mild weather, rain, light winds, and a good harvest. These produce the satisfaction for a person of skill whose wages are the produce of the land itself, right? So we're not talking city wages and a paycheck. We're talking the land producing and growing. So we're going to rewrite this a bit. For the skilled farmer satisfied with the produce of the land, life may be sweet. This is a better rendering of the meaning for a skilled farmer. So we're, gonna, we're doing a lot of simplification. Yeah, no worries. Uh, I know it seems that we're taking this journey together. Scripture is important. Scripture tells us where we stand. Scripture helps us understand what God is doing in our world, even and especially when we disagree with Scripture and wrestle with it, right? So... Honing the meaning of the first part reverberates in the second part. As always with the ancient texts, look for agency. Who is doing it? Ancient people assumed God was doing it, that it was God or an animating spirit. God, through the soil and the wind and the water, is the active agent in making the crops grow, 
But here in this verse, in the tenses that we find in the languages, the ancient languages, we see that it is the farmer who gets to be the agent of finding the treasure. Now, men don't get a lot of agency in the Bible. God does most everything. So when you come across a place where human beings get to be the agent of something, you pay attention. How cool is that? We are gifted with the ability to find treasure in our world, in our lives, and in our creation. The ending of the verse, in this case, turns on the word treasure, the gift of the grain, the gift of the fruit, the produce, that this treasure is the trove of the storehouse. That's another meaning for that very word in the Hebrew and again echoed in the Greek but that we do not get in the English is that storehouse and treasure are the same word. The produce of the land, the plenty to feed the family in the village. Even sweeter than a productive, contented life is the treasure that is life itself. So can you see it in your mind's eye? The rolling, ripening grain and orchards full of fruit, as if you are the farmer standing there, right? Maybe a little bit of mist in the background, maybe a mountain, you're in a fertile valley. You could hear the birds. There'd be a water source nearby or nothing would grow. Breathe that in. Right? So if we're not careful, we're going to make another Western context mistake. The Western ideal, again, is that we are alone in that field. The great man farmer making it all work, a giant among men, which isn't very fair to farmers who work really hard and need all the help they can get. Any Western or Eastern farmer will tell you that no man alone can do that. That's why we call them family farms. Simple. That's why we do that. Or to a Middle Easterner, the phrase might be, it takes a village. So in our minds, I again reimagine those fields so green and ripe, and the farmer standing there is not alone, but shoulder to shoulder with those with which he shares the work and the meal and the warm home at night. God is everywhere, in the farmer himself, in the fields, in the treasury, the storehouse of God's goodness and abundance, the pearl of worth and value. No greater value can be imagined. This verse invites us to see the better gift. I want to invite us to see it also in each other, starting with ourselves. Maybe we remember back to the day when you first encountered God in your life, recognized the value of the gift that you experienced in that moment. Perhaps it was a moment where you were singing or playing an instrument, or perhaps you were in prayer and it just fell upon you. Or perhaps you were in the middle of a particularly complex math problem and the boundaries of the world evaporated and you realized how connected it all was, number to number to number to mind to mind to heart. 
I remember how marvelous was the day that I discovered that God had chosen me. I wrapped God around just me for a long time. Just me. I could do it myself. I could have my own spiritual meaning. For many, many years, I rejected the Bible as being hateful. I believed that's what was true about it. And so you can imagine my joy when, as an adult, I realized I had this mind-blowing discovery that God had not just chosen me, but that God had chosen us. Us, we, the church, the terrible, wonderful, broken church. We move through stages in our lives in groups that help sort of understand how we can come to be the kind of church that values life itself. There is a wonderful little model by David Logan. He calls it tribal leadership. And I don't like the end where he lands at the end, but I think he's got, he's on to something as he talks about the process. It starts with, let's give it this storyline. There is a boy, and nothing goes right. He's in the middle of terrible despair. Perhaps he has uh, encountered abuse. Perhaps he's just having a really hard life. But regardless, he's in the process of what we would call life stinks. He thinks there is no hope for life at all. These are the loners the despairing, the violent. They believe there is nothing good anywhere. But this boy, he's sitting there, and maybe he's about 15, sitting there in the alleyway, and he looks over, and he sees this other boy with this soccer ball. And he's kicking it and bouncing it, and dang, he's good with that ball. And people come around him and say, wow, how do you do that? That's amazing. And the boy notices this and goes, well, maybe all life doesn't stink. Maybe just my life stinks. This is an improvement. It opens a little bit that there is more that is possible. And so the boy says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn to do that. And he gets a soccer ball and he practices 24-7. He is always bouncing the ball and the ball, and he, he, he gets into a group, and they form a team, and he becomes the very best one on that team. Boy, he's feeling on top of the world. He's really got it. This stage is called my life. Uh, uh, this is called I'm great. This is the I'm great stage. Boy, this is important. This is a stage we all got to move through. Our teenagers have to get to a place where they feel there's something very important and special and gifted within us. And if we're 40 and we haven't been through that stage, we better get to it. Because there is something super wonderful that you are going to... The contrib we are contributors to God's world, just as we are with the gifts we have been given. I'm great, says the boy, there's a dark side. It's I'm great and you're not. We see this a lot in corporate America, right? 
that vacillation between I'm great, I'm on top of my game, and you're not, I got the promotion, and boy, my life stinks because that person just got promoted, and I should have, right? So if we're not careful, that leaks into our churches, and we become people of contest. I'm great, and you're not. I'm great, and you're not, right? And it doesn't help us. I'm great is good, though. I'm great is a good thing. And what we're really hoping we're going to do is we're going to push people from I'm great to recognizing, wow, here I am making all the goals and making all the soccer goals. And I suddenly realize, you know, if all these other forwards on the soccer team were as good at me and making goals, we'd make five times as many goals. If the goalie in our team was as good at catching the balls that I kick as I am at kicking them, we wouldn't have anybody score a goal against us. And it, we move into, we're great. Together, we're great. We can help each other. We can encourage each other's gifts. Moving towards doing the thing that matters in the world. And our soccer team begins to take the world by storm. We start winning and winning and winning and winning championships. And we get to go on Oprah. <laughs> and it's marvelous. There's a dark side. We're great, and you're not. Anybody else hate the Dallas Cowboys? <laughs> ah, good, I see hands in the back. Yes, my people are in the back. <laughs> so sadly, we do that, right? As a Seahawks fan, I have to govern my emotional content, right? Because when they play the Dallas Cowboys, I am really hoping the Cowboys will go down. <laughs> Which doesn't really help our world much, right? So it's a good thing. We're great. We're great. But you know what's even better? Your team that's won these championships and all the gold trophies you could ever want suddenly realize there's more to life even than this. They notice that kid this new kid on the sidewalk, tossing a stone alone. The boy who is now a man who has won many championships says to himself, we're gonna do something different now. And the team begins to teach across the world, community after community, about how good it is to grow and change and work together to live our gifts. I would love it if we were a life is great church. But we get that like the kingdom of God in little pieces. And we need not be dismayed if we can't stay there all the time. But we are great. When we do that together, always remembering that I bring my gift, I'm great. And together with your gift, we're great. And in those moments where we truly see the pearl, life is great. Life is great. It is only when we are together that we are the church. So, I have a lot more to say, but I actually think I'm done now. I want us to keep this thought with us this week this thought about who we are, 
what your place is within it, how you are vital to the team of we and to the gift of life in this place. Amen.